my dad would say, Chester, you be good to everybody. Everybody's having a tough day. Don't forget that. Everybody's having a tough day. You be kind. As we go back to our faith, I honestly believe to my core that we are all children of a loving God. Well, if we are all brothers and sisters, how can we treat each other badly? I mean, the fact that some of my brothers and sisters are different colors or live in different neighborhoods or socioeconomically different, it doesn't matter. Because if you're my brother, you're my brother. If you're my sister, you're my sister. If you need my help, I give you my help. When there are crimes in the name of faith, it wounds me deeply because clearly there's part of their belief system that has become corrupted because you wouldn't treat people badly. Certainly you wouldn't war against them or kill them if you honestly believed that we were all divine in nature. And that was one of the messages I really wanted to get through to my kids is no matter what people say to you or how they treat you, don't you ever forget that you are divine. Hi, this is Josh, and this is The Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-around people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. You're about to hear a conversation distinctly post-George Floyd. It's by two leadership writers. Normally, Chester and I write for a general, mostly business audience. This conversation felt more personal. Normally, when a friend introduces a potential podcast guest to me, and I talk to them for the first time. We start by talking about each other's work. We figure out scheduling. With Chester, right away, and maybe this has given his openness, and I hope mine, as well as the protests raging still around the country, around the world, we just jumped right into talking about race and our interactions with Blacks, both of us being white. I mean, we spoke for a couple hours on a topic that polite conversation generally avoids, let alone makes it the first thing two people talk about when we're meeting for the first time. That's often not what people discuss, but it became a very comfortable thing for us to talk about. These past conversations, plus the continued protests, the media discussion and so forth, and Chester and my growing friendship to keep speaking more openly, set the tone for this conversation that you're about to hear. We talk about listening, we talk about leadership and other aspects, and talking about George Floyd, BLM, and things like that that follow. So here's Chester. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Chester Elton. Chester, how are you? I'm doing great, Joshua. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to have you here. And I was just before we recorded, we started talking about rallies that are about to happen because it's, we have the intersection of, of post-George Floyd, of the pandemic. And then we both come at this from leadership. We met, I guess, ultimately through Marshall Goldsmith and Sarah MacArthur, his COO, and we haven't gotten to really meet because every time we talk, we just start talking about current events. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I just find your view on things so refreshing and so calm and so thoughtful. And we, we've had we've had some great conversations. It's always a delight when I see that we're going to have a, a time to chat. Yeah, me too. And I keep thinking, this time, let's go back over our histories. <laughs> and so I'm going to indulge myself here. And I'm going to say, here's what I know about you and tell me, that you have written multiple number one New York Times bestselling books, generally on leadership, 
you're a speaker, and also religion is a big piece of it as well. And uh, you brand yourself with the orange. <laughs> more than that, I just know you as a friend. And uh, can you fill in more of the details of, of your background for, for the listeners? Sure. I, I love those little patchwork impressions. Uh, orange <laughs> being very accurate. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've been writing books with my friend Adrian Gostick for 20 years on really culture, leadership, and, and gratitude. And we've we've always found gratitude to be this sort of thread that brings itself through to, to great leaders, great cultures, uh, great teams. And uh, our last book, Leading with Gratitude, is, is, is one of my favorites. And it couldn't come at a better time. We, we released it in March, and then the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we bought a lot of space at airports to sell our books that immediately uh-huh. emptied out. Uh-huh. We, uh, we hope it wasn't because we put our books there. And, you know, when you, when you bring up the, uh, the issue of faith, yeah, I, I grew up in a very faith-based family, continue to be uh, a, a man of faith in it. And it does guide a lot of, uh, of what I do and, and clearly who I am. So I'd say, yeah, those little patches, pretty accurate. So we've been talking mostly a lot about I guess more about Black Lives Matter and and George Floyd and also connecting. As we are both white guys, for anyone who can't tell from hearing our voices. And we've had various interactions. We're not, we're not like what's bubbled into like just pure white communities. And so we've talked about our different experiences outside that. And then, of course, is in the context of a pandemic that restricts our movement a lot. And... What were you saying just before? Oh, we were talking about there's a, there's a Trump rally coming up, I believe, in 24 hours, roughly speaking, in Tulsa. It's tomorrow. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's really fascinating. You know, I, I really loved our conversations, actually, about the civil disobedience because I grew up in Canada. And when it comes to, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter and those kinds of things in, in, in Canada, it never really happened. Right. We didn't have the, the big slavery issue. In fact, you know, the, the Underground Railroad uh, went into Canada, right, we went into Toronto and and uh, so in moving to the States for me, that was really an interesting dynamic. You know, now I've lived in the nor- northern states and the western states, never in the southern states or visited often, never really lived there. The turning point for me came because of my faith. I, I interacted with about a dozen young black men in a congregation of our church in East Orange, New Jersey. And orange being my favorite color, that was uh, kismet. And I really got an insight in what it what it looks like to grow up in an area where you don't run to the police for help. In fact, if, when the police show up, it's, it's usually bad news. You know, somebody's in trouble or something's happened where economically it's, it's a struggle where the schools really aren't top notch, where, you know, the kids would tell me stories about their weeks and their days. And it was quite shocking to me. And yet it was their lives. Right. And, and how inspired I was by the simple goodness of these kids. You know, they were kids like everybody else. They, they loved basketball. And I'll tell you a funny story, Joshua, because, you know, being Canadian, of course, there's your faith and then there's hockey. And, and one is clearly more important than the other, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've got friends at the New Jersey Devils. And I, I, I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to take all these kids to a hockey game and they're going to love it. They're like, hockey, you know, soccer, basketball. <laughs> hockey and i was uh, able to convert them to the to the joys of of hockey and, and the reason i tell that is just simple little differences right you know we project ourselves on everybody like i love hockey everybody should love hockey you know i grew up safe everybody grows up safe and so for me when the george floyd thing happened as shocking as it was i was i think like most white people that well you know that's a tragedy and yet it's certainly the, the exception well 
my wife said, call your black friends and just ask them how they're doing. And man, I'm telling you, that was a revelation to me because people I'd known for years and years, you know, Brandon Robinson, a good friend of mine, known, known him for, for a long time, successful banking executive. And he said something that really turned me on a dime. He said, you know, my wife is more worried about me than I am because of the Central Park incident, you know, where the woman threatened to call 911 on the mm. bird watch. Uh, Amy Collins, I think. Yeah. 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 And uh, he said, it doesn't bother me so much. Now, he grew up in the South and he said, because I've lived with it my whole life. And that was the, the phrase that stopped me dead in my tracks. And I thought, really? Your whole life? He goes, Chess, I'm black. I thought, yeah, but you're right. You know, isn't it different for you? And he goes, no, it's not. And that's when I started to call a lot of my black friends. And, and I was so tickled that every one of them said, thanks for calling. Because, you know, you say, well, how can I help? Mm-hmm. I said, you know, just call. The fact that you called and that you let me know that you love me and you're thinking about me. Because when, they, when people don't call, we assume either it's not important, you don't think it matters, or you're complicit. And that stopped me in my tracks again. I said, well, just because somebody doesn't call. Well, because when there's a void in communication, for whatever reason, we go to the negative. Well, if, if my white friends don't call, maybe they are complicit. Maybe they really do look at me differently. So I love the conversation. And, and you and I, uh, two white guys talking about it, I think it's important for us to educate ourselves and understand that there's a whole society out there that is marginalized beyond what we can comprehend simply because of our past experience. Does any of this babbling make sense? <laughs> <laughs> I personally, yeah, I was just talking to, um, do you know Mark Turchek? Have you? Yes. Met? Yes. Okay. I met him through the MG 100 actually. Yeah. Okay. So I was just talking to him a couple hours ago and he was talking about how people are calling for him to, to share, you know, he's no longer the, the CEO of the nature conservancy, but he's right. still, his name is still attached to it. And people want to know like, why aren't there more blacks and things like that? And he's not, required to speak, but it's hard not to speak. And he's not exactly sure what to say. And he pointed out that he doesn't necessarily have any more wisdom than anybody else. But I think that this wisdom, wisdom is important, but also just one's perspective. No one has anyone else's perspective except their own. And so to hear someone else's perspective unguarded is often meaningful. And uh, no one has all the answers. Exactly. And you know, it's interesting. And this is what I would teach my kids in East Orange. I'd say, it's it's just important to show up. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be wisdom. You don't have to have the sound bite that goes viral or the video clip that, you know, goes uh, global. You just need to show up. And, and in the context, when, when I was working with them, it was show up for each other, mm-hmm. right? Just show up. Because it was interesting. You know, I, I'm in this congregation, predominantly black, and I'm, you know, it's not hard to pick me out of the crowd, you know? And I'm showing up thinking this is going to be really great for these kids that I'm here. And and it it took about two months for them to say, so you're coming back. (laughs) You're you're not just showing up. You're, you are, I mean, they're showing up and there's consistency and there's, and this talk is cheap. Well, exactly. You know, it's why, you know, I was in parenting. People say, well, it's not the amount of time. It's the quality time. I think it's both. Uh-huh. I think you need to spend, you know, when you spend a lot of time with people, like you say, it's unguarded conversations. It's those, even those quiet moments where you just sit there and, 
and just enjoy each other's company. So as soon as they knew I was coming back and, you know, I, I, I was involved with those kids for like six years. I mean, you know, when you see a kid go from 12 years old to 18 years old, that's, that's pretty dramatic change mm-hmm. and to, and to gain their confidence and their friendship. And, uh, and, you know, like, like many teachers or people, you know, we show up and think, oh, isn't this going to be a blessing for these kids that here I am, you know? And then you reflect back on it and say, that, you know, the, the biggest winner was me to, to, mm-hmm. to be able to spend so much time with these wonderful young men that, that have gone on, every one of them, to, to be good contributors, to go to university, to serve missions for their church, to join the military and, uh, and carve out meaningful lives. And, and the fact that their faith and their families and, and perhaps you know, some of the time they spent with me contributed to that is, is, is you know, the, the books and the speaking and all that. Yeah, it's wonderful. You know, I will count as some of my greatest experiences is six years in East Orange with, you know, a dozen just great kids. You know, I'm going to reinforce something slightly different than what you said, but okay. People aren't very effective at predicting what will make them happy. We tend to think, I want to watch TV. I'll watch TV and that'll relax me or something like that. And we often leave thinking, oh, that was a waste of time. And we think, should I go to uh, work at the soup kitchen? I'm like, oh, it's going to be a lot of work. But when we walk away from the soup kitchen, we feel like, man, I got to do that more. And so the context that I heard this, and I hope I didn't say this before, or maybe my listeners have heard me say this before, but it's great to know is that there's all these articles about self-care and how to take care of yourself during the pandemic or in difficult situations, how to make sure that your, health, your, your mental health is okay and so forth. And what actually is more effective is how you can help others. And then once you have meaning and purpose, that, and, and that will create a drive. And then you'll, you'll probably feel better than if you got your nails done or whatever, you know, whatever the typical self-care stuff is. Right. I, I think sometimes we, we, we confuse safe, self-care with self-indulgence. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm going to go for a massage that's part of self-care or get my nails done or, or whatever. When, when really, uh, and I learned this from my, from my mom and dad, uh, that when you serve, you never regret it. Yeah. You know, you, you just never do. I had a, a somewhat, I, I guess, a little bit of a unique experience as a kid. I, I have four older brothers. You can imagine five boys in, in, in one house. We broke everything. And, um, <laughs> It wasn't unusual. My mother was such a caring person. It wasn't unusual that I'd wake up and there would be a kid living with us mm-hmm. just randomly. And it was, it was, it was funny. I, I don't think I ever said this, although to sum it up, I would say, well, I know I live here and clearly you live here now too. So who are you? <laughs> you know, And why are you here? I mean, we brought in kids from, you know, first nation families that needed a place to live or students that were in transition and so on. And, and my wife and I have continued that tra- uh, tradition. In fact, it's really interesting. We have a, a young woman who's a student uh, from uh, Colombia uh, living with us for just a few weeks. And it's been anywhere from a few weeks to we have uh, had a couple of kids come live with us for, for well over a year. And uh, I think we were totaling up. I think we're up, up to almost like 20 different people that at some point have come to live with us. And to your point, it's uh, we have this old Victorian house. You know, there's always an empty room somewhere. And uh, and it's one of the, it's one of our great legacies, I, I think, that when somebody needs a safe place or just needs a place to live, you can call the Eltons. 
and show up. Like I, It was so funny. We got this request. A guy that had lived in the area and had moved out west and was coming back to restart his, his Broadway career. Uh-huh. And uh, the minister in our congregation uh, said, uh, hey, uh, uh, Chester and Heidi, you know, uh, Dallin is, is coming back to restart his career. And I love the way. Do you know anywhere that he might be able to rent a room for an outdoor there where he could stay for maybe a few months? <laughs> we just laughed at each other. Yeah, send him over. It's okay. Yeah, that, that was a <laughs> like, polite way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that what's done for us is, and they've been, you know, uh, uh, kids from um, South America and, 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 you know, wherever, is because we've invited that diversity into our home, socioeconomic, racial, gender, age, our kids have grown up knowing that you just help people. That's just what you do. You know, if people need help, you, you help them. And, I, and as I look at all this controversy and I look at all this vitriol and, and the hate, I just think to myself, you just don't know each other. You know, if, if you invite them over for dinner, you know, hear their stories, live with them for a couple of weeks. I think it's very hard to hate people that you've served. You know, when you serve people, I think it's hard to, to hate them. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm off. This is what you're reminding me of why I enjoy talking with you so much is that and you started to say this, you listen, you asked me my story and you listened to my story. Just now you said, we don't know each other that well. And I think everyone wants their story out there. Everyone wants to tell their story. The listening part is a lot harder and takes a lot more patience and listening to people you disagree with or listening to people that like, I remember talking to you a couple of times and just afterward being like, he was really patient. I was really going on there for a while. (laughs) <laughs> you, you sound like it was entertaining to you and maybe it was or meaningful to you, but I couldn't know that in the moment. And that really meant a lot to me. And certainly I don't see that in politics. There's just, the media is really big about everyone wants they, their voices getting out there. It's push, 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 pull. And that listening part, hearing the voices of people that you haven't heard, inviting them into your home, inviting, listening. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting uh, when you say in, in the politics or whatever, it's not just pushing your voice out there. It's drowning out everyone else's voice that I really take offense to. I, I think what you said there is really important is everybody has a story. And to everyone, that story is sacred. And in listening to those stories, I, I think you become part of that sacred moment. I think, you know, as people have sheltered and they are, you know, uh, more and more sequestered. And, you know, we live in the greater New York area, small apartments, single people, and they're alone. And I think one of the one of the things that people fear is that they'll be forgotten. And, and I, you know, as, as I talk to my black friends through this, this thing, so, you know, our, our stories have not been heard. People don't know our stories. They don't know what it's like. You know, I work with the New Jersey Devils hockey team. The greatest thing ever, if you're a Canadian, is to Mm -hmm. know guys in an NHL franchise, you know. Well, they've got a great big defenseman on the team, P.K. Subban. You know, great big black defenseman. Played up in Canada, grew up in Canada. Never really experienced that kind of racism. Well, he was traded to the Nashville Predators. And he said, in two seasons, I got pulled over. I forget the number. It was like 16, 17 times. Just because he drives a fancy car, he said, you know, they related the story that what he did is he he got a whole bunch of baseball caps for the Predator baseball caps and and autographed them and gave them to the police that stopped him. Mm -hmm. What what a wonderful way to try to turn around the experience. And yet, I've never been pulled over just because. 
Mm-hmm. Every time I get pulled over, trust me, I was speeding. <laughs> <laughs> I was going way faster than I was supposed to. And uh, one of my black friends said to me, he says, yeah, here's a phrase that no, that white people hear all the time and a black man never hears when a policeman pulls him over for speeding. And it's, thanks for the warning, officer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You get pulled over, you get a warning. I get pulled over, I get a ticket. And I thought, you know, it is, it's different. So in, in you know, our conversations and our babbling, I couldn't agree with you more. People's stories are sacred. And if you listen, they'll tell them. They'll tell you their story. And it's always enriching. I'm going to go one step further, which is it's listening to others. One of the core elements of my practice is making the other person feel understood. And I want to differentiate that from you understanding them. Because when I tell a story, I want to know that it's been heard. If you hear it, maybe you hear it accurately. Maybe you heard something different than what I actually meant to convey. So to go back to the person and say, I don't know if this is always important, but it's certainly in the leadership context. I don't really know what motivates you. I don't know your inner passions, your emotions, your drives, your hopes and dreams. And if I ask you them, you'll tell me, but I might misunderstand. I'll, I'll tend to hear you in my way of things and I'll often get it off. So I want to confirm with you. Let me see if I get this right. Is this, what's, is this what you said? Almost always the person's going to say, actually, that's not quite it. And they'll correct you. And they go back and forth until they say, yes, that's it. That's, that's what I was getting at. You, you understand me. That is a gift that it's so, I mean, if you want to lead someone by a motivation that's 90% right and 10% wrong, the person's going to grow to get really annoyed with you. And, <laughs> but if you take the time to get to, closer and closer and closer. And instead of saying, I understand you say, if I understand you right, is this right? Is that's making people feel understood is a tremendous, have I, I, did I talk about this before? No, we haven't. And I I agree with you. Clarifying questions are, are really important, you know, because we, so much can be misinterpreted, you know, that's why I I never trust a text or an email because there's no intonation. There's no facial expressions. You, you know, you can read a, the same email five different ways and get five remarkably different messages. So I think it is important to clarify. I think the other thing, and, and this is something that we really fleshed out in our book, Leading with Gratitude. And it's, it's an, an idea that I've, I've had in and around my work for a long time. And that's assume positive intent about people. In other words, assume the best about people. And 99 times out of 100, you're going to be right, you know, that people really do have good intentions. Whereas, you know, when you get your news feed or you watch politicians, they assume negative intent about each other right from the get-go. Often maximally. Oh, yeah. Extreme, right? And, and you see it in the soundbite world that we live in. The soundbite has to be clever. It has to be memorable, hopefully rhyme, and at the same time be cruel. You know, and I'm thinking, gosh, that's uh, that's crazy. You know, my... um. My grandfather, David Horton Elton, had a, a wonderful tradition he passed on to my dad, and then he passed it down to us. He said, you know, whenever my dad would hear somebody gossiping about someone, you know, whether they were at dinner or wherever, he would always stop. And he'd say, for example, if, you know, Joshua, if you were saying something nasty about Susan, he would say, you know, Joshua, I'm, I'm really surprised to hear you say that because Susan speaks so well of you. That sounds totally like a, a Francis Hesselbein sort of thing. It, it does, doesn't it? You yeah. know, you say, and then you kind of go, ah, crap. <laughs> you know, they've never said anything but nice about me. And here I am, you know, tearing them down to the ground. And it was just his subtle way of saying, is this really 
how we want to engage, you know, in character assassination. And uh, I think I told you the story. Uh, we actually used it in the book. And I was delighted that Adrian, uh, near the end, wanted to use it. In our church, you know, we, we volunteer. So the work I did in East Orange, it's all in your own time. You don't get paid for it. It's your it's your it's your calling, right? And my dad was working with the youth in our congregation and an older woman, you know, those nasty old people, everybody's got one in their congregation. For whatever reason, they're miserable and they want you to, you know, join them in that misery. The church lady. She said, you know, Brother Elton, you know, we call each other, you know, Brother Elton, you think all the kids in this ward just love you. Well, I'm here to tell you, they don't. You know? and, and my dad said with a big smile, he goes, well, thank you very much. And she said, it wasn't a compliment. And he said, too late. <laughs> <laughs> that strikes me as very stoic. You know, it's like you can, or there's many ways to look at it. I want to go back a second to, to what I was saying before about the uh, making people feel understood. Sure. There's, I believe that there's an emotion without a name. You know, like schadenfreude, you know, we don't have a name for it in English, so we take it from German. And when right. we hear the word, we don't think, well, that's weird. I guess Germans have an emotion that we don't. We think, oh, that is kind of cool. Like, oh, there's a name for that. Right. To make some, to feel understood is an emotion. And I believe it's, it's up there with love in terms of its power and the positive feeling that it gives you. To feel understood by someone else. It's, it's close to feeling supported, but it's not exactly the same. And I, I wish that this word existed. And I've sat down with like Latin and Greek roots to try to put them together to make the word. Because <laughs> like, you know, flow, Csikszentmihalyi came out with that word. And now people say, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I want to get into a flow state. And we like that. It facilitates getting into a flow state. And I think to feel understood, to give someone that feeling is one of the great gifts you can give someone. If you make them feel understood about hungry, like, oh, it's lunchtime, I'm hungry. That's nice. But about the most meaningful, deep, where they feel most vulnerable, to make someone feel comfortable sharing what they feel vulnerable about and then supporting them on that so they feel understood Man, that's what people who do that with me. That's you want to be with people like that. You want to open up with people like that. I agree. I mean, the word that came to mind as you were describing that was just, I feel affirmed. You know, there's an, it's an affirmation of me as a person that I matter and that I have value. You know, it was really interesting for me to work with these young men that the act of showing up for them and being there made all the difference uh, for me and, and for them. They were validated, you know. It was also really interesting to me, Joshua, how little it took to be encouraging to people. There was a very interesting dynamic that I observed when I, I first arrived, you know, in East Orange. And it was that, um, that they picked on each other. And I, I thought that was really interesting. You know, and, and it was it kind of part of the, you know, the Twitter world where, you know, you're you're snide and you're cruel and you're quick and you're witty. And and it was one of the things that, that I said, hey, uh, you know what, guys, we need to change this. You know, we need to cheer for each other. And when you pick on each other like that, it doesn't make anybody feel good. Right. And they kind of explained it to me. They said, you know, you got to understand that in, in our neighborhoods, we don't have a lot. All we have is our pride. And the way we kind of elevate ourselves is we push other people down. That's kind of the way you do it. And I said, okay, well, not here. We're not going to do it here. Mm -hmm. And so it was really interesting. We had our rule of three, the three things that we would work on. And, and we, this was our mantra. Every time we got together, we had this little ritual. We'd go through our, 
our slogan, which was we're all in our rule of three. And, you know, uh-huh. and our rule of three was that we would be world class, that everything we did, we would do to the best of our abilities. And secondly, that we would make no excuses. And because, you know, it's very easy to fall into an excuse culture. Well, it's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. Or, you know, if I had or when I had or if I could have had. And my dad had another great saying. He'd say, excuses, even when valid, are never impressive. (laughs) And so I'd say, so how can we be world class if we make excuses? So we want to work really hard. And we won't make excuses. And the last one was by far the most important. I said, and we will cheer for each other. And what does that mean? How do we cheer for each other? And they'd say, well, we don't, we don't pick on each other. And that's right. We don't insult each other. We don't call each other names. What else do we do? And this was really interesting. They said, well, we can pray for each other. I said, I think that's beautiful. Wouldn't it be great if every day when we said our prayers that we prayed for everybody in this, in this class? And what else do we do? said, well, we're kind to each other. We support each other. And we're affirming for each other. And I said, yeah. And, and you know what, Joshua? As soon as I started to buy into that, the whole culture of that class completely changed. They, they really did become brothers. And it was a joy to watch. They, they smiled more. They sat closer. They hugged each other more. You know, we, one of our, our kids was really a good basketball player. Jeffrey Duveston, number three in your program, but clearly number one in your heart, right? And we would go to his games and we'd bring his cousins and, and we we would cheer and scream and yell. And it was, it was wonderful. Now I got to take, you, you, you started this by saying, it's amazing how little it takes. I'm like, you showed up. That's a lot yeah. more than that. It's, it shouldn't be a lot, but it's a lot. Like I go picking up garbage every day. I'm like, man, it doesn't take much to pick up garbage. And I dream of people making their cities clean and, because the Upper East Side is pretty clean, that the rich people are going to have to go to poor neighborhoods and pick up <laughs> their litter, which they're already profiting from anyway. So they might as well pick it up. <laughs> Imagine that's the, that's the experience that you have of rich people is they come to your neighborhood and, and pick up garbage and then you're going to meet them and you're going to hear their stories and they're going to listen yeah. to your stories. Showing up is such a big deal. And the experience that you're talking about, you're showing up with these kids, you're changing their lives, they're changing your life. You also speak to, what's the largest audience you've spoken to in a corporate environment? Uh, 10,000 people. Live, 10,000? Yeah, it was Tesco. It was in Birmingham, the UK. It was, it was phenomenal. Wow. And how long did you speak, if you don't mind my asking? It. Yeah, uh, it was our jam-packed program. I think I spoke for about 35, 40 minutes. Was there, were there like lights and stuff when they introduced you? Or was it like a big, and here's oh, Chester. Yeah. It, yeah, it was quite the production. You know, it was... Um, it was an arena, and so it was a circular stage in the you know in the middle. Uh-huh. And it's fun, you know, when 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 I speak, I like to throw you know stuffed carrots at people and stuff. Well, it was a huge stadium, so what I did is I brought like a, about a dozen frisbees uh-huh. <laughs> and I fired them up into the ever. It was a, it was quite a spectacle. Yeah, it was it was wonderful, and and you know big screens over top of you for the people in the in the upper deck and whatnot. And and I loved the challenge to try to connect. You know, how do you connect with 10,000 people? It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Now, I think we can say this is, if not the pinnacle, then close to the pinnacle of your career. I mean, in, in public speaking, in, in corporate workshops, that's not many people reach that level. A lot of people with a show called Leadership in the Environment, they probably also want to lead in their area, which could be public speaking. It could be what we do. It could be another thing. 
a lot of people want to reach these levels and they think, well, I can't do these other things on the side because that'll distract me from getting ahead. Things like showing up to a community center and helping kids and things like that. I'm reading from you that that's exactly, could you be more successful if you weren't spending time, wasting all this time with these kids? Or is it time with these kids that makes, or do they fit together in some way? Oh yeah, it's the latter. I am so, I am such a better uh, leader and person and husband and father because I spent time with those kids. You know, I, I, this idea of don't distract me. I live a life of distraction and, and I, I think it's wonderful. I mean, you know, I, I collect fountain pens. I have hand painted English toy soldiers. I have a stamp collection. I go to hockey games. I, I follow the English premiership because my son Carter is a Manchester United fan. I, you know, I, I, I have a really diverse group of, of friends, uh, you know, that don't fit uh, the mold of, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I'm, I'm saying that of, of most executives. And, and to me, that's the richness of life. I mean, the fact that we are friends delights me. We, we, mm-hmm. We're so very different and yet uh, have so many things in common. And, you know, I, I, as I'm thinking about it, as we're talking, I, I think this goes back to my mom inviting all these kids to come live with us. I mean, we had First Nation kids. We had rich kids. We had poor kids. We had troubled kids. We had and, you know, I think the message for me when I was a kid was that everybody's, everybody's important. Everybody's valued. My, my dad, I tell this often when I speak, he, he, he spoke to everybody the same. And, and I know that sounds funny. He, he would talk to the guys bagging his grocery the same as captains of industry. He, he ran a radio station. So he was kind of a guy in town. You know, I mean, people knew him and he knew politicians and athletes and musicians and, and so on. And, and the message, subtly and not so subtly, was everybody matters. You know, my dad would say, Chester, you be good to everybody. Everybody's having a tough day. Don't forget that. Everybody's having a tough day. You be kind. And, and you know, as we go back to our faith, you know, in my faith, I honestly believe, and, I, and to my core, that we are all children of a loving God. Well, if we are all brothers and sisters, how can we cheat, treat each other badly? You know what I mean? I mean, the fact that some of my brothers and sisters are different colors or live in different neighborhoods or socioeconomically different, it doesn't matter. Because if you're my brother, you're my brother. You know, if you're my sister, you're my sister. And if you need my help, I give you my help. And to me, that's where when there are crimes in the name of faith, it wounds me deeply because clearly there's part of their belief system that has, has become corrupted. Because you wouldn't treat people badly. Certainly you wouldn't war against them or kill them. If you honestly believed that we were all divine in nature. And that was one of the messages I really wanted to get through to my kids. Is no matter what people say to you or how they treat you, don't you ever forget that you are divine. (laughs) Uh, That left me speechless. (laughs) I was about to say, thank you. Let's end it right there. (laughs) But I want to keep going on it. I, you know, certainly on the environment, I talk to a lot of people who say, you know, the environment's important, but look, I got to get ahead. You know, the environment's important, but my mom lives across the country and I'm going to go, I'm going to go fly to see her. And to me, it's become very clear that the environment is, it's not a second thing. It's not unrelated to anything. It's related to everything. And 
you don't get ahead at McKinsey and then, I mean, if your plan is you get ahead at McKinsey and then, and then you'll work on the environment, I think you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's a little disingenuous, isn't it? You know, uh, we, we were laughing and we were trying to get you up. We have a little uh, lake house up in upstate New York, just this bucolic little place. And uh, I, I joke, there's a, a hike right right by where we have our little place. It's called Bald Mountain, which pleases me, <laughs> given that I'm bald. And um, and you get to the top and you can see four of the Fulton chain of lakes and this just this undulation. And, and I, I describe it as an ocean of trees. Mm-hmm. And I come back to my faith and I say, now I know when God wants to talk to his prophets, he always sends them to the mountains. And now I know why. Because, you know, when you have that view of nature and, the, and its magnificence and this incredible creation, how can you throw a paper cup on the trail? Like, how, like, like, how can you do that? Yeah. How can you leave a plastic, how can you throw a plastic bottle off your boat into the ocean? Well, I think you're asking this in rhetorically, but to me, the, I really do, that, that is a question I have to answer that question in order to get where, because leadership, I believe, is you have to go where they are. Not where you want them to be or you think they should be, but where they are. And there are people who are like, not my problem. Or, you know, that is, it's challenging to get there. I was talking with someone earlier today and he was saying, but what about, I'm talking about too much context here. He was talking about how don't we still want to get to other planets? Don't we still want to do all these like advanced, advanced, super techie things? And I said, we've just been talking about uh, the trees outside his window. I said, how many, look outside your window. How many trees do you see? He goes, I don't know, six, seven, eight, ten. I don't know. I go, how many of those trees do you know the species? Do you know what birds live in those trees? What bugs they eat? Do they even produce fruit? He was like, I have no idea. And like, okay, so we got to figure out quantum gravity. You know, as a physicist, I'm very interested in figuring out quantum gravity. But the number of trees within 100 yards of me right now, compared to this spot 500 years ago, is like, it's pathetic. And we've lost touch. And, and to get to the stage where we're, Throwing paper cups, it's like, that's big. But what we've done already, uh, I don't want to get too into this. Well, I love that take. And, you know, our, our conversations and, and when I saw Mark present, it does change you, you know. Not, not only can I not throw a paper cup into the street, when I see a paper cup, I can't walk past it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it doesn't it bother you even more when you, you see a paper cup or a plastic bottle and it's literally like three feet from a garbage can. And you go, it, it was, I mean, you could see the garbage can. What, 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 what was it that you decided that you would stop three feet short and, and drop it there? Well, I agree with you. I, I think, you know, a lot of it is getting people into nature. You know, one, one of the great things we did with our, our kids in East Orange and, and they live in cement jungles, right? Very little park area, very little green and we would take him to scout camp. You know, we'd take him up uh, by Monticello, the 10 River uh, Boy Scout camps. And they would spend a week in, in nature and, and see the bugs and the birds and the deer and, the, and so on. And it was, and it was very, I, I think it, it does speak to your better angels. You know, it, it does speak to your soul that these are divine creations. You know, in, in my faith, we, we believe the earth has a spirit and is a living thing. How can it not be? And, and that it is worthy of, of our respect and, and our care. Now it's expressed to varying degrees, depending on what part that plays in, in your faith. Uh, one of the things I love at our, our, you call it a camp, you don't call it a cabin or a lake house. 
is uh, I always put up the Canadian flag. That's how you know I'm in residence and we hang it there. And the uh, the moths and whatnot that come on there. And, you know, when you look at a Luna moth, you know, which is it's massive moth and I'm, and you look carefully at the detail of this moth you know the the antenna and the and it, it's beyond magnificent you know and it's this big right it's mm-hmm. it's a little bigger than a, an old silver dollar and uh and you think wow how can i uh, how can i not respect that how can mm-hmm. i not and we had a woodpecker carve out uh, in a dead tree a nest and and calls out all the time and i think how how wonderful yeah and yet at the same time, we kill all the mice in our house because they're destroying our house. So there's this balance, you know. Many of us prefer Ben and Jerry's to an apple. And you got to go for a while without the Ben and Jerry's before the apple starts tasting good again because it just kills the taste buds. And then it takes, it takes a bit longer than that before you start looking at the Ben and Jerry's with disgust and wondering what was I thinking and how much more flavor there is in the apple. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Do you know my, my process that I do with, with not all the guests, but some of the guests? No. Can I walk you through this process? It's what I talk about in my TEDx talk. Sure. Okay. So when you think about the environment, when you act on it, what do you think about? I mean, you talked about like you, you pick up the paper cup, but what drives that? Where, where's that motivation coming from? You know, I just think, you know, we need to take care of where we live. And uh, it, it's a, for me, it's a sign of respect. I mean, is it respect for what? Is there something that like, is it images? Is it feelings? Is it memories? Is it? Uh... Yeah, I, I think it's all of that. You know, I think it's respect for your community. I think it's respect for the environment. It's, it's respect for uh, who's going to come on that walk behind you. You know, uh, you're paving the way for other people to enjoy a clean, and I, I think of clean as being safe, a clean and safe environment. And it's respectful. I, I hate, uh, you know, playgrounds for kids that have trash in them. That's, it's not being respectful. It's not clean and it's not safe. That's my attitude. Are you thinking of specific times that you've been in nature? I mean, you talked about this bucolic environment up, upstate. What you're saying was very general. Are there specific things in your memories that, that come to mind? Yes, last week we were up there hiking Bald Mountain and on our way down, there was this plastic Dunkin' Donuts cup uh, left on the trail with the straw uh, with half of an iced coffee in it. And I thought, well, why would you disrespect this beautiful woods by leaving your trash? I mean, and so to not ruin the descent for the people behind me and to be respectful of this beautiful place, I picked it up and took it the last quarter mile down the hill and put it in the trash can. So I'm hearing, I heard a couple things. One is that, is the Dunkin' Donuts, was it? Yeah. A part of me wants to make sure everyone knows, Dunkin' Donuts garbage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that there was that, and there was also this, what, what would have been there otherwise, or what, what it was messing up. I feel like that's a big part of your childhood, your whole existence is... is... Beauty, simple beauty. Why would, you, why would you mar the natural beauty of this walk? 
Yeah. So I also hear a curiosity, a morbid curiosity of, not morbid, but of what's going on in people's heads and hearts that leads to this. Because I don't know about you, but I have a very hard, I mean, either time empathizing with people whose political views I disagree with, which right now this country is very polarized. Right. And with getting how I walk down the street and there's like a Starbucks cup sitting on top of a, um, of a fire hydrant. I'm like, just because it's a horizontal surface doesn't mean it was made. Anyway, so I invite you at your option. You don't have to do this, but I invite you at your option to think of something that you could do to act on those feelings. And a lot of people, when I say this, they think of like, oh, what's something I read in the New York Times is like the biggest thing I could do, or what's one little thing I could do. It's not to save the world. I, I'm not talking about, it's great if you do save the world, but to act on your emotions, those feelings, those values, what's inside you already. And it has to be something you're not already doing, something that you do yourself. So it's not just telling other people what to do. And with some measurable results, you don't have to measure it. And it doesn't have to be long, it can be short. It's not big or small, it's just doing something. And I wonder if there's anything you could do to act on that, if you're interested. Sure, give me a suggestion. <laughs> well, I, I hold back on giving suggestions because I find that a lot of people, if we go back and forth a couple of times, then overwhelmingly they say, oh, you know, I've been meaning to do this thing for a while. Like they've been thinking about it and here's a, here's a chance to do it. And when it comes from something that they've already wanted to do, what I'm going for is someone doing something they want to do. Because I think most people think it's a burden. You know, it's, it, it's interesting that you, that you bring this up. So my son, Brendan, you know, is, uh, has two degrees in engineering with this MBA. And he was up with us uh, last week for a while. And uh, uh, one of the things is, is, you know, there are certain aspects of our lives where it's so inexpensive that we don't hesitate to create trash, although we're very good about, well, we're good at recycling. I don't know, very good, but, you know, we'll buy a flat of bottled water. We have a well and the, the water in the well is fine. Mm-hmm. It's just some people are uncomfortable with well water and so they prefer bottled water. So, you know, at the local IGA, I mean, you can buy a flat of water in, in plastic uh, containers for like three bucks. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, and so you say, okay, well, as long as we're really careful and we recycle it. And Brendan said, Dad, why, why don't you just buy six or seven of these, and I forget what the brand was that really, you know, keeps your water cold and, and put a filter on the, on the sink. And that way, you know, when people come up, you can just put a piece of tape, you know, clean it out. Here's your water cup. And we wouldn't have to buy flats of water anymore. And there was a bit of cognitive dissonance for me because I'd say, well, we recycle all our plastic. So that's good. Plus the flats only cost three bucks, <laughs> you know, so, and so on. So, you know, maybe what I'll do this call to action, I'll call Brendan and say, so what was the name of that thing? And I'm sure we can, you know, find them uh, somewhere and, uh, and make that change um, up at the lake so that we, uh, we cut back on our plastic recycling. Is, is that a thought process and motivation and a small change in behavior that you think would make a difference? Yeah. Well, it's not if it makes a difference. It's if it resonates with something inside you. And if so, the next thing I would normally say is make sure it's a smart goal, which it sounds specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. And here's the question. Are you are you doing this for me or are you doing this for, for you? Or <laughs> I really love that you asked that question because I think, yeah, it's something that we should do. And uh, I could do it for, for, for the family. And there's part of me that says, I want to do it for Brendan. So that his suggestion was heard and we actually did something about it. And I think that would be very affirming for him 
and beneficial for the family. Okay. So I'm going to ask you if we can next time we speak or after, how long do you think it'll take for this to happen? Three years, Max, uh, <laughs> probably. <laughs> oh, I think we could do it in a matter of a couple of weeks. Yeah. All right. So can we schedule another conversation? So in a couple of weeks to hear how it went. Sure. Well, we're hoping in a couple of weeks, it'll be you up at the lake. Yeah, no, we'll, yeah, I'll yeah, bring you, two you, microphones. You, yeah. You can trust and yet verify. <laughs> and enjoy the sure. fresh water. And enjoy the clean water. Actually, I'll, I'll just, I'll probably have it unfiltered and just enjoy <laughs> the well water. Yeah. It, you know, every now and again, it gets a little gritty, which I think is good for the digestion. So I don't worry about it. All right. So let's do that. And let's hear how it goes when, when it happens. Now, okay. any listener will know I had to bite my tongue and we could talk about this another time, but recycling and some of the things that you're like, oh, this is benign. I'm like, oh, it's... Uh... <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you, you had a big impact on me because when you said you have one bag of trash a year and I thought, man, we were up at the lake house for like three days and we had four bags of trash. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because we, you know, we bring stuff up and there's packaging and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and of course, I told my wife about your no package stew. Uh-huh. So we've got we've to treat ourselves to that when we see you. Oh, you know what? And I'll bring up my, my famous note. I'll bring up my, um, my pressure cooker. You know, I did make it out, not exactly to where you, I don't know if I'm sharing too much, but you're, you're going to come in the city, pick me up to drive me out there. Right. In order to get off North America, I took sailing lessons because not flying. And it turns out that between the path station and the marina where I took the lessons, there's a parking lot. And in the parking lot are two mulberry trees. And I, I love the mulberries. And so there are Juneberry trees in Manhattan that I love picking the fruit of, and they're amazing. And this year hasn't been a good year for Juneberries. Sunday morning, I woke up, 5 a.m., had to go to the bathroom. As I'm getting back in, in the bed, I'm thinking, I want to go. Today would be a day I could go out there to pick those mulberries because they're in season right now. But if I get on the train with all these people, I don't know, you know, COVID and so forth. But I'm thinking it's 5 a.m. now. So I got out, I got up and I caught the 6 a.m. train path, at 6 a.m. I caught the path train across, picked berries for like an hour and got all these mulberries. And I thought of you because I was like, okay, I'm not up where you guys are, but I did come into New Jersey (laughs) and I picked the berries until my containers are full and my arms can't reach up anymore because they're so good. And this bounty of nature that we're living in is just unbelievable. Like, I, I love it. In fact, I haven't had lunch yet. So after we finish, I'm going to go eat some mulberries. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and see, here's, here's, I think the magic of just connection and friendship is every time we make a connection and we make a connection outside our comfort zone, our behaviors do change whether we plan on it or not. You know, our conversations have made me look at our garbage differently, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, uh, our recycling differently. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I'm a big believer that I'd rather have a lot of people do a little bit than have one person do a lot. And I bet you'd rather have both than all of those. <laughs> yes. If you could get everybody doing a lot, that'd be great. I think it's an unrealistic expectation. You know, it's one of those things where you think, gosh, if in our neighborhood between the train station and their house on their daily walk, if everybody picked up two pieces of trash, you know, I'd rather that than have two guys designated to pick up all the trash. You know, um, well, the goal, my goal is to, is a cultural change. You know, when I was a kid, smoking was like a matter, it was a matter of Humphrey, it was Humphrey Rogart. Now right. it's lung cancer. That's a right. big shift. And when I was a kid, you could go into a bar and say, give me one for the road. I'm going to drive, give me alcohol. 
That, right. that doesn't happen now. I mean, it happens. Yes, it happens, but a lot less. It's not acceptable. Not, not with anyone I know. Right. And I believe what's driving me, what's ser- what I believe I'm serving, the act of, one of the acts of service, I believe, is helping people get to where they, you know, they don't want to have a cigarette when they're at a bar. They don't want to have a drink before they drive. They think about every single piece of plastic that they get. And if it's not necessary, they enjoy something different. Yeah. Yeah. I change, I, you know, I, I talk about that as changing your palate. You know, in, in North America, we have friends come visit from Europe or Australia or whatever. And they go, man, your food is all so sweet. Mm-hmm. There's sugar in everything. Mm, yeah. You know, and I go, yeah, you're right. I, I remember, you know, living in Italy for a while and everything was made fresh. You know, they didn't have big refrigerators because if, you know, they'd go to the market every day, everything was fresh every day. And, and why do we love Italian food so much? Because it's, it's just, it's so genuine. It's so fresh. It's, you know, I gave myself this challenge. You know about the challenge about avoiding packaged food. Last December, I was sitting here and I was reading some article about, I'd learned about how in other countries, they preserve more through fermentation than refrigeration. Right. And I don't turn the heat on here. I live in a big apartment building. So, and anyway, so by my window still gets pretty cold in the winter. So I was thinking, I wonder if I could not use my fridge for a while. And I knew from experience that if I analyzed and planned, I would analyze and plan forever. And I just thought, I just walked over and unplugged the fridge. And I, <laughs> then COVID happened. So by March, I hadn't yet plugged it in. So I finally plugged it in when I got back here in June. So I, yeah, six months, it was unplugged. <laughs> And that's great. So I had to shop. I mean, in the winter around here, it's like parsnips and rutabagas and, and uh, root vegetables and beets and things that don't need so much refrigeration. And yeah, so kind of fun little games to see. And then you end up having to get fresher vegetables. Well, I guess I could go with canned, but I don't go that direction. <laughs> well, anyway, I want to wrap this up uh, and because and, we'll pick sure. up next time. But I'd like to ask, I'd like to wrap up with, is there anything I didn't think to ask? Or is there anything you'd like to close with? to say directly to the listeners? You know, I, I've just been thinking a lot about uh, legacy and how do you want to be remembered? You know, uh, Stephen Covey's famous, you know, challenge, what, what do you want people to say at your wake? You know, what do you want to put on your tombstone? And for me, I, I, I think I would love on my tombstone to just say he showed up, you know, when, when he called, you know, he showed up. And I, I think post-COVID, if there's a benefit and there will be. I mean, we, we will be changed, right? It's nothing's going back to normal after this. Is that uh, that we're a little more grateful for what we have and, and not so envious about what we don't have. Let's be grateful for what we have. That we're a little more kind. And I know as we talk about you know uh, protests and so on, it's, you, you see a lot of unkind behavior. And then and then uh, lastly, that we just be a little more patient with each other. And I think this comes back to where we kind of started our conversation patience to me is you listen, you know, you listen to people. So a little more grateful, a little more kind, a little more patient. I, I think that's a better world. That's, that's kind of what I've been thinking lately. And, and the legacy of that, wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to look back on your life and say, he or she lived a life of gratitude and kindness and patience. I think that's a lovely legacy. Chester Elton, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Joshua. Always engaging. I posted to my blog not long ago what I see as a few words that describe 2020, that describe our times. 
Everybody wants to talk, but nobody wants to listen. I think my conversations with Chester helped prompt that insight. He listens. It didn't come out as much in this conversation because I'm trying to showcase him, but he listens very well. I'm trying to learn from him. Do you know people in authority showing the world that they are listening? Maybe asking clarification or confirming questions, but otherwise making others feel understood. And I don't really see that happening very much. In fairness, if someone has a national voice with all the protests from different angles, from different communities with different interests, is it possible to make a group or bunch of groups, as opposed to individuals, feel understood or even listened to? I'm not sure if that's possible. I know that when I teach leading groups, I use Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail as an example of someone making others feel understood. I believe that his sharing his vulnerability as a father probably made his audience of protesters feel more understood and listened to than the ministers whose letter and, or letters to the editor he was responding to. That's something I don't see happening. People sharing their personal vulnerability. I think we could use more of that. I don't know if I do it very much. I try to do it more. Regarding the environment, Chester asked how someone could spoil a sea of trees by discarding plastic or waste into it. Say it makes it to a garbage can instead. From a systems perspective, waste being inevitable, we human beings being imperfect and our systems even less perfect, how is supporting that system by buying doof and unnecessary plastic like single-use bottles and other containers any different? I think it's not just where you put your garbage, but to what extent you support a system that creates this waste in the first place. To some extent, of course, today it's hard to avoid. We exhale carbon dioxide. But there seems to me a major difference between just accepting something, as nearly everybody does, versus trying. Not even trying as hard as you can, but trying, at least somewhat. Say, never to use single-use anything, or just not using it for a week or for some time. Because the more that we try, the more that we develop the skills to live how people did for hundreds of thousands of years before plastic. We don't need that stuff. Then it becomes easy and it becomes natural. So even if we can't stop everything, it seems to me trying. That's the leadership. That's the starting point. Well, I look forward to hearing how Chester does with his challenge. We'll see in episode two. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.